This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by HVMN's Ketone IQ. Welcome back to Cyclist Magazine podcast. I'm super excited about today's guests. Mikel Delagrange is the founder, or at least co-founder of the Amani Project. It's an important project in cycling circles as it is set to promote inclusivity and diversity with the bold mission of trying to change the face of cycling. Yeah, that's right. And one thing that, this sounds ridiculous, but I'm going to throw out there, it is Amani, like A-M-A-N-I, because it's so easy to think that Armani is sponsoring a pro cycling team. And Armani is not sponsoring a pro cycling team. This is an initiative that started by Mikhail, who is uh, an attorney um, by day, and he works um, at The Hague. So I'd say you're, you know, you're a lawyer, Anthony, or you, well, you technically still are, you're just not practicing. And The Hague, I'm assuming, that's sort of like, that's world tour level lawyering, isn't it? Yeah, he's a world tour lawyer. I'd be more of a continental level lawyer. Would you pro Conti? <laughs> <laughs> still, still paying for your own race entries. Still, yeah, got to buy your own wig. But no, so he's yeah, he's he's an attorney by by day and kind of mo- not really moonlighting because it sounds like he's throwing a whole lot into it. He's taken it um, upon himself with some sponsors, with other colleagues as well. It's not just him to really push privately push the agenda, the cycling agenda in East Africa specifically, which. You know, we've seen this season um, lots of headlines around Biniam Gamay, the first black African World Tour event winner. But that's not enough, is it? That's not enough for our man, Mikel. Well, what's fascinating is if you rewind back to, was it 1951 when Sir Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile? Journalists at the time were sort of arrogantly proclaiming, this is the height of human achievement. And now we know with the benefit of hindsight, you know, how ridiculous that is. There's kids in East Africa that jog to school faster than Sir Roger Bannister ran that mile. But I wonder, you know, we're joined on the call today by Salim Kip Kemboy, one of his riders as well. But I wonder, is the likes of Salim or any of his other crew, do they have the potential to totally blow a Filippo Ghana record out of the water? And we look at that Ghana record and we sort of think to ourselves, oh, I wonder, is this the fastest anyone's going to go? But we've excluded an entire continent from participation at the moment. Yeah, exactly. Um, and even with Ghana, right, you're thinking he's never going to be able to get close to what was the kind of human effort hour, which was the Boardman record um, of 55 point whatever, and Ghana's gone. Did Ghana go 55 or 56? Ghana's gone 57. 50 set, there we go. So so we thought, even then, you know, we, the great cycling we, who are we to judge? But you're like, we can't even, you'll, you'll never get close to that because it, that was all about the bike. That was all about the position, which was banned by the UCI. So there is still work to be done on the hour record. And you just think, systematically, it has all been done with white blokes, right? And yeah. this is an entire different part of the world, an entire different group of people with a different upbringing in terms of where they live this is something that columbia did and came and shook up the scene in cycling when columbian riders came over in the 80s who were living a blooming hard existence at altitude and demonstrated themselves to be incredible climbers and it's partly to do with the upbringing and where you know where they're from the mindset but also the fact that you're living at two and a half thousand meters then your body's just made a bit different and these guys are the same. It's why Kenyan runners are just so much better than some bloke from Denmark, which is the flattest country in the world. 
And what I thought's really interesting from the outside looking in, I would have naively assumed that the barrier to participation was monetary, that it was they didn't have enough cash for equipment in this, you know, modern day arms race we're in in cycling. But, you know, we have all these different categories of stuff. We have stuff we know, we have stuff we don't know. And then we have this third category, which most of this falls into. They're accounting barriers that I didn't even know I didn't know about. It's stuff around visas, vaccine passports, the intertwanglings between federations and the UCI. And it's just a whole myriad of complexities that I can't even begin to get my head around how we erode these barriers. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like when you are traveling to some kind of event, you're just worried that you haven't packed your passport. And, you know, we might have been a little bit worried about COVID uh, vaccination passports um, not so long ago. But provided you've got your passport, your debit card and your shoes and your pedals, you're good to go. Whereas that is just the absolute beginning for these guys. For Cyclist Magazine, we did an interview with uh, Biniam Gamay and he, at the interview, he'd just come back from being based at that time with Intermarché in Brussels. He had to go, on, he had to, go to Paris, to the Canadian embassy, to go and get a visa, stand in line, literally hours and hours and hours, just like everyone else, stand in line to get a visa to go and race in Quebec and Montreal, and then come back and then do a media engagement with us in some cafe in Brussels, and then get on the train and go to wherever his hotel is. And that's just to go and race in, let's face it, I don't even know what that race is, right? It's not even a high-profile race. And, you know, those are the hoops these guys have got to jump through. And that's before even sort of, you know, getting out of your own country. Because that's not the easiest thing. It's, it is, it's just, it is totally mind-blowing. And you just think if we can solve what are basically a lot of bureaucratic admin issues, like you say, how quickly are we going to progress across 60 kilometers um, in an hour for an hour record? How soon will we actually see one, two, three steps on podiums um, being, yeah, for example, black Africans? At what point does the sport actually properly look diverse? And we see some proper diverse winners. It's, it must be soon, right? It's a fascinating conversation and I'm really excited to welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast, Mikel and Salim. Mikel, Salam, welcome to Cyclist Magazine podcast. Thanks for having us, Anthony. Thank you. Yeah, welcome, guys. James, this is a first for us with uh, the, the multi... We felt like we'd conquered the, just the two of us speaking over each other, so we wanted to add a new variable into the mix and go with a four-way chat today. Yeah, and I'm, you know, I can already see this working out brilliantly. Uh, there'll be no talking over each other and you know, absolutely testing our uh, internet service providers' bandwidth. But we're all coming in loud and clear. Um, but where are we coming in from? So uh, first, uh, Salim, where are you? Where are you calling us from? Where are you sat right now? I can't tell because you've just got a beige wall behind you, not giving much away. <laughs> yeah, at the moment I'm speaking from the home of champion, a place called Ipin in Kenya. Oh wow, nice! And uh, what what time is it there? And have you been out for a ride today already? Yeah, yeah I already did a ride in the morning. Now it's uh, uh, three past three. <laughs> Oh, nice. You kind of have to say you've done a ride, don't you, when the boss is listening? It's... <laughs> you definitely haven't been riding already. Salim, is, uh, he's just recovering from COVID, actually. So today was his first day back on the road. How are you feeling after COVID, Salim? Actually, I feel good. Like I didn't expect to feel good today. Like, it was actually good. It feel like how you could feel riding a bike on the first night when you're out of off-season. I was happy here. <laughs> uh, Mikel, to dive in and hit you straight off the bat with a hard question, uh, just sort of following on from the chat we had over on my podcast, 
uh, we've we've since become formal Instagram friends. So I was like, ooh, it's a big uh, in betweeners and say friends, friends. Uh, but I noticed that one, you have children, and so I was kind of reflecting on that at a uh, chatting with Alex Hales today, who's a recent enough father the last couple of years. And we agreed, or at least most reasonable people agree, that excluding a kid on the playground from not being able to play games is wrong. It breaches that sense of fairness we have. And certainly excluding a continent from the ability to compete in a sport is definitely wrong. But like, how do you calibrate that sense of fairness into your own kids? Is it like leading by example or do you sit down and do you chat with the kids or is it something you've even crossed that bridge yet? Well, first of all, Anthony, I, I appreciate you coming up with new and original questions as we agreed. Uh, that's a good one. That's a very good one. Um, I think about it all the time. And actually, I have these kind of two models in my head from like my stepfather and, and my mother. Um, my stepfather like kind of just did his own thing, was like the big trial lawyer. And uh, occasionally he looked back to see if we were still around, but uh, but mostly just kind of like did his thing. And we all kind of he, he was such a big character and a big presence that uh, he inspired by example. And then my mom, of course, was like this kind of, you know, she was around for for all the emotional support that children need. Yeah, I'd like to think we're splitting the baby, for uh, lack of a better term, um, and, and trying to... <laughs> and trying to actually, like... I mean, both my wife and I are in the same field. Um, we're both uh, quite busy um, and... We both, uh, I mean, are, are motivated and, and have dedicated our professional careers to to this concept of justice. So we hope by osmosis, and, by osmosis and nothing else, that like this seeps into our children. Um, but yeah, like um, at the same time, there's only so much. I think when you have kids, you realize there's only so much like you can actually do. A lot of it is kind of in the gene pool, and then. And then everything else seems to be socialized and like the daycare and stuff. So yeah, you, you try your best. Just to, yeah, to steer it back to an incredibly obvious question. You had your nice, nice little lead in there from Anthony, but just for uh, people unfamiliar with where you're coming at this from, uh, Mikhail, you mentioned something really um, interesting and important there, that both your wife and you work in an area which is not cycling. So what is that area and how have you kind of morphed from having a day job which is which you're just about to tell us which is very different into now working alongside athletes like Salim and putting on gravel racing events as well under the auspices of uh, the Armani project yeah thanks for that question James I mean honestly I don't know how we got here um, <laughs> as I told Anthony before, um, yeah as, as part of my day job I worked at the International Criminal Court for 12 years. Um, and specifically, I worked in um, Kenya, Uganda, Congo, uh, Sudan. And it was in my time working at the International Criminal Court that I came to be familiar with uh, the different cycling initiatives that were going on in the respective countries that I was working in. Um, but because of that experience, uh, in my, my day job, the last thing I ever wanted to do was set up a development project because... I saw nothing but the gross underbelly of international development. Um, and the last thing I wanted to do was be involved in replicating those models because I do think that they are they're vestiges of, of, of 
obvious former colonial periods, uh, and they are still measures and modicums of control. And I, yeah, I'd like to think that what I've done in my career, but also, you know, and the things that we are doing since then in the cycling space is trying to learn from those mistakes and even trying to go so far as to undermine that system. But yeah, uh, how did we get into a cycling team and to, to organizing bike races? The one thing I learned, if I only learned one thing uh, during my career, was that if you're working in someone else's country, uh, trying to assist with other people's problems, the first thing you need to do is shut the hell up and listen. It seems like a no-brainer, but to be honest, it's, it's kind of a, a revolutionary concept in, in this space. Uh, because we uh, who are coming from the West tend to think that um, we come from a place that we've got all the answers and we know what's best. And by virtue of our socioeconomic statuses, we, you know, we must and we should be the one who dictates terms. Uh, and that's where really all the best uh, and, and brightest and, and most amazing ideas go to die. Uh, particularly in East Africa, but also in the global South in general. Long story short, to get involved with the, with the cycling, I, I was first a fan of of a lot of the athletes, including uh, the late great Sule Kangani, and uh, and at some point we fell into conversation. Uh, he identified some of the challenges. I thought at the time, because I was based in Holland, that we were strategically placed to maybe ad help him address some of those issues. And then one thing led to another and we have this team in these races. What I love about this project, Miguel, and chatting to you, I think it benefits so much from you coming from a non-cycling environment and not having as much cycling skin in the game. Like, as you say, you don't earn your crust, you don't get your paycheck by being involved in this. Because the idea is brilliant and it's coming up with a continental team is brilliant. And there's so many dreamers around Europe and even closer to home for me and James to say, oh, we'll set up a continental team. But there's no money there. They have the vision, but they don't have the logistics. They don't have the organizational skills. And that was the last thing that East Africa needed was a token team, a team that... It wasn't an example locally to people as a way out of poverty. You know, I'm sure running is a great source of like an escape route in some communities in East Africa. Now cycling has been set up as a legitimate secondary escape route. It just didn't need that half-assed project. So I think that's the main benefit I can see from you coming from a non-cycling background, that that wasn't even an option probably. Well, I mean, we also benefited from all of the... Uh experiences and uh, examples that came before us, right? Where and, and I can understand exactly how the trajectory went from we're setting up a team for Africa to we're setting up a team of Europeans that are riding for Africa, you know, like, I get it, you know, because of the way that the world tour is also set up in, in the sense that, you know, if you don't, if you don't accumulate enough points and if you don't do precisely the way that, you know, sponsors want to see their products oriented, et cetera, and, and the consumer base is also white, so they don't want to see black athletes riding. It doesn't help in terms of their bottom line. I get all of these things. I get it. So I'm not throwing stones at what came before. But at the same time, yeah, uh, because I'm not in the cycling industry, I didn't necessarily feel the pressure of replicating the model. And I think also maybe if you come from outside of the industry, you can also maybe see things a little bit differently or maybe in some cases more clear, sometimes maybe more opaque. But uh, yeah, that's, that's, 
And again, it's not, again, I want to really stress this. Um, it's me and Salim here with you today, but there are a lot of people and a lot of uh, minds behind this. And, uh, and we're all kind of, you know, we crowdsource this thing. But the, I think the cool thing maybe about it and the one thing, even if we get it wrong, that crowdsourcing is always like coming from the source. You know, like we're doing this together and if we make mistakes, we've done it together. And it's not because somebody had some bullshit idea in Holland uh, and then tried to make it work in, in Kenya that it failed. That won't be the reason. So, Salim, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came across Mikel. And you're racing, um, turning pro uh, or riding with Bike Aid. And you're under 23 or, or you're 23 now, so you're still competing in the under 23 category. At what point did you cross paths with um, Armani Project and where are you at with it at the moment? Actually, like, um, I've met with Armani like quite a long time ago, like 2019, but I just like raced with them once in, in, a, in a race in Congo, but I was not like so much in Armani. But I think a few months ago is where like I came across, to spoke, spoke with Michael and like, Try to chat with them if I can like bring a backup for the team. Like try to to work on the team, try to fight on the team. Like try to get opportunities which I need. It's possible. Like I try and check and see with Aman what they're doing. Like I can able to do something or achieve my goals with Aman. So so I have to jump in here because it's really funny. Uh, <laughs> Salim's first uh, outing with Team Amani was our first race. And, and when we first kind of conceptualized this, we thought about doing a hybrid team with like, like sort of European pro-continental riders and some riders from, from East Africa. And uh, the first race we did was the Tour of Congo. Uh, and it was <laughs> such a shit show. <laughs> I think the entire, uh, so they, it's notable for, you may not have heard of it, your listeners may not have heard of the famous Tour of Congo, but it's notable for like in-stage race transfers. And at some stage, I think uh, I think maybe stage two, so then correct me if I'm wrong, but our entire team was wiped out by a, uh, by a series of uh, speed bumps that were placed about 50 kilometers or 50 meters from the finish line and a sprint finish. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently so the whole peloton gets wiped out. And then there was like some guys from Morocco or something that got dropped that just kind of went by the carnage and won the stage. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so anyway, this is all to say that there's no surprise that from that day on that Salim took a, a couple more years to come back to us. Uh, after, <laughs> after the first, first outing with Timo Mani. And we, you mentioned earlier on that when you go somewhere, you it's up to us, up to you, up to whoever's going to somebody else's you know backyard to to listen, to ask questions, but to listen. So, question for you, uh, Salim: What did you tell Mikhail that he should he should know or should be doing for for his project, for his vision? Because you know you are the people, you are the guy that is actually at the sharp end of this. And you got, I would imagine, better ideas as a pro bike racer about what pro bike racing should be <laughs> than um, than any of us. So, so what were those ideas? Actually, like, I didn't tell Mikel like a lot of things. Like, Mikel already like, it's like he's in industry. Like, he understand like everything, like anything that you could think that you know about cycling. Already, Mikel knows it, so <laughs> it's easy for him to deal with. So it's just like small tips that. We just share together, like, the broad things, but he already knows a lot of it. 
Maybe just to add on to that, um, I mean, one thing that Salim's experience, Salim and Charles, they, they've had, uh, they bring a unique experience coming from this kind of pro-continental space. And again, without casting aspersions against any project or anything, but there were obviously always examples of, you know, disparity of treatment, even within teams, um, about like how certain riders from certain places would be treated, the way that, you know, their access, the way the information that they received, even like where they stayed. Um, and these were always very informative anecdotes from Salim and Charles, and they just reinforced the point that we needed our own squad to kind of do things our own way. I'm kind of struck by in history, it normally needs a moment for something big to change. You know, it needs somebody refusing to give up their seats at the front of the bus. It needs, you know, if we get closer to sport for concussion protocols to change, unfortunately, it probably needs someone to take a really bad head injury and not make it out the other side. I'm wondering what that big inflection point for diversity looks like. Maybe for women's cycling, it was the Tour de Femme Avex Wift where it brought it to mainstream consciousness. Do you think there is one big moment like that where there's a total pendulum change or is it going to be just creeping incremental changes over a period of time? Yeah, my, my suspicion, even my hope actually, I, I, I'm always suspicious of these massive inflection points because... What we think is an inflection point in you know at the moment sometimes ends up being a false flag or a false hope, right? Like, you know, the Arab Spring, for example, where it's just like, wow, you know, it's raining democracy and then it just rained autocracy and and it got even worse. So I mean, I, I, I'm more confident in incremental gains. I'm, and and we, as we discussed before, I'm, what we would like to do is just normalize our participation in this sport. That's our goal, you know? We don't need necessarily, like, someone to come out of nowhere and do this, you know, like, produce miracle numbers and win the Tour de France overnight. Uh, what we need is just to increasingly just be present, competing, uh, being part of the mix, being part of the conversation at the pointy end of bike races. And then at some point, people will just, like, look up and just think, like, whoa, you know, it's actually just normal to see people from the rest of the world playing this game. That's that's what we want. That's what we're aiming for. We're not aiming for the home run or the miracle. And like with, with the barriers that we have, we, we discussed them. It's There's so many, James, you wouldn't even believe when you start digging into what the barriers to participation are. So many of them are, you know, vaccine passports, their visas to get across borders, their financial concerns. But like, is there one body, Mikel, that's like the lever to control in this? Like, is it a UCI decision they can make to put, athletes from East Africa into a different category that allows them visa access? Or who's the one body, the key decision maker that can really change fortunes at the moment? I'm not sure that there's one body that can, you know, there are so many countries involved with their various, you know, visa policies and restrictions. And But the UCI plays a critical role. Let's not kid ourselves, you know. Uh, and the system that they've created that governs particularly road cycling uh, is one that is pitted with obstacles. It's by no mistake that we've chosen to pursue gravel um, and and mountain biking and you know and uh, ultra endurance races and these kinds of things because they're the only events that we don't have we don't get blocked at the door you know by you know the UCI vis-a-vis -vis their federations. So yeah, if the UCI wanted to overnight make uh, you know, participation in their events more accessible, they could. 
And if they wanted to allocate resources to truly make this sport more international, they could. And I'm sure someone might be listening to say, but we're doing all these things. We have satellite centers and we're spending all of this money and we, you know, we allocate money to the federations and all this. That is all true. But I'm somebody who uh, is not satisfied. Even when I, and I speak now about myself and about the things that we are involved in, if things aren't working and they're not producing results, then you need to have a hard look at it, right? Uh, and they've been at this game now for I don't know how many years governing the sport of cycling. Uh, if we look at their events, you know, um, they don't involve many people outside of Europe. And that's a fact. And so it doesn't matter how much money they've spent or whatever efforts that they have uh, allocated for, for making the sport international, they're, they're not succeeding. Uh, and what is succeeding is this sort of weird anarchic democratic movement that's happening basically organized i i would suspect even from fans you know and people who are fed up with like all the rules and just wanted to go out and ride their bikes and maybe not just like stare at their stems all day and, and talk about bottom brackets and power numbers but like also and not to say that doesn't have a place it does but like uh there's more to cycling than that you know like recapturing that feeling that we had when we were seven and I think uh, that's that's what Gravels managed to do. And at the same time, whether they meant to or not, they've like created an atmosphere or, or you know a genre where people can just turn up to the line and race against the best. And if they have what it takes, then they know. And if they don't, they know what they have to do. And that is the critical thing that's been stopping us for so long, is that we haven't been able to ride at that pro pace. We're not allowed to. And if you can't ride at the pro pace, you can't compete at the pro level. It's just, that's how cycling works. We hear about ketones in the pro peloton, but what are they? According to experts at HVMN, ketones are a natural source of fuel for your body. Studies show that ketones are 28% more efficient than glucose, making them a super efficient fuel source for your long rides and races. These benefits led HVMN to create Ketone IQ, which is a drinkable ketone designed to support energy, focus and endurance. It's developed alongside the US military, and Ketone IQ is one of the most powerful ketone supplements on the market. It's designed to elevate your ketone levels for up to four hours, which is much longer than other products. Plus, it's caffeine-free, it's compliant with the World Anti-Doping Agency guidelines, and that's a major win for athletes. Ketone IQ shots are the best way to get your ketones on the go. What I love about them is they're portable, and they fit so perfectly and neatly in my jersey pocket during a ride. So visit hvmn.com and use promo code CYCLIST at the checkout to save 20%. And to learn more about achieving your ultimate metabolic potential, subscribe to HVMN's podcast, Health Via Modern Nutrition, which is hosted by Dr. Lat Mansour. That's on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. So visit hvmn.com and use the promo code CYCLIST at the checkout to save 20%. Salim, what's been, in your experience, your biggest obstacle from, you know, cutting it as a kid and wanting to ride bikes to getting to the position you're in now? And also from the position you're in now, that obstacle to that next, as Mikhail says, you know, that kind of next level up. I don't know. I think Salim could be frozen. This is one of the obstacles. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's true, isn't it? We did uh, an interview with um, Binyam Gamay and he was sort of like talking us through how he got to where he was. And he's like, you know, obviously I'm riding at altitude. That's a plus point. But you know what? It's really hard to get coached by him because you have to go to an internet cafe really far away from where I live every single night to upload my training peak stuff to my coach and then sit there while it painfully ticks over and then kind of go back and then practice. And it, it's like that extra level of time commitment and stress and that boring admin it, you know we just don't even realize it's just not there for most european athletes it's taken care of in fact that's the whole point isn't it it's taken care of by those people mm. seeking to employ them and to get them to that sharpest end in order for them to concentrate fully on just the task of cycling or running or football or whatever it is so yeah i can kind of see this is exact i mean i'm, I'm assuming like, Mikhail, you, you kind of have this a lot. Like, it must be really difficult to kind of span the gap between how we can work. And, you know, you say you can sit on a call with 30 people in The Hague, right? And it's easy and the internet works. And then it's like this. And then you've got to reach your athletes. I'm assuming it's a pretty big, big hurdle. Yeah, I mean, it can be, but it's just, I mean, at some point you just get used to it, right? Like, uh, <laughs> you know, so just like you get used to the fact that like some guys in a group ride might be on like, shitty bikes and their and their groups had squeak you know like you just deal with it <laughs> like at the same time it's just part of the game you know yeah um, james you were talking you mentioned uh biniam there but michael i wonder is this i don't want to say biniam but i'm going to call it the biniam effect for the purpose of this example so i remember when i was trying to make my way through cycling you go out the first time you get to race abroad and you go to belgium and you get absolutely annihilated like you're winning races locally and you think you're the big fish and then you go over there and you're like oh my god there's another 200 fish that are even bigger than me and you need to go and go and go and go again and you get less shit each time you're there until the point when you actually might be good and a team wants to sign you but thinking back to a South Park character, and they called him Token, the one African-American guy that was in South Park named Token. I wonder, are we guilty as a cycling culture of throwing in one African-American and saying, that's our diversity box ticked? And then they don't get access to that, you know, repeated exposure, like I was talking to you in Belgium, and they're judged off, you know, the first race, the second race. And there's no sort of critical mass of East Africans coming in at one time. Yeah, I mean, that was, that's always been our fear. Like we, everyone jumped for joy and rejoiced about Benjamin's uh, success. I mean, it's amazing. But it was always our fear that this one in a billion performance would then give people um, who control the power and the access to the sport to say, well, there you go. Uh, job done, you know, yeah. I, I guess the sport's accessible. Uh, we know there's nothing else to see here. Yeah, so that's that's always the the flip side. Um, in terms of in terms of access, I, I, I just think in general that I can see how some at people in the sport will just say, look, if people aren't good enough to get to these higher echelons, it's not our problem, you know. But if we look at the reasons why they may not be able to reach the upper echelons of the sport. That's the thing where I think most reasonable people can agree that it's unacceptable, right? It's not, a, it's not that they were unable to produce the numbers or that, you know, physiologically they just are unable to compete and therefore we are seeing the highest and best performances that human beings can do on the bike in 2022. Um, it's a lot of bullshit, you know? It's a lot of bullshit. Like people really just can't get in a country 
or when they do get in the country, it's like the day before, and they're on a bike that they've never ridden before, and they don't have, they don't, they've never tried the nutrition, and all these things that are not level playing field. You know, when it comes to the 22-year-old from Belgium and the 22-year-old from Iten. Now, again, I, I, as I told you in the last time we spoke, I don't want to give you the impression that like all of these things are insurmountable and that we're just whining about it because we're not. Like there, there is shit to do, and we're getting after it. You know. Um, and, and, but the thing is, is that to really achieve this, it's not going to happen overnight and there isn't going to be this, you know, we can't be satisfied with the one in a billion Benjamin Gamay. We have to make incremental gains and the way to do that is by building a coalition. And that coalition is of people who just want to see their sport accessible to the rest of the world. You know, that's it. And if more and more people, whether it be from a consumer perspective or from a fan perspective or from a competition perspective, are all pushing in the same direction, being like, come on, let's let everyone play. We won't be satisfied till everyone plays. Then we can say, you know, God, these guys from Slovenia are just, you know, the best that human beings can produce you know, in terms of cycling. And I'm perfectly happy with that result, as I told you last time, you know, like let that be the case. But then, but then we can all cheer for them, you know. Just thinking about the other things, other machinations in cycling that have at least looked like they're trying to be more welcoming, to open up that playing field, as you say, to make sure that at least every single kid can have a go. And then we can really say we've got a fair competition that is representative of the greatest athletic abilities of humankind, not just of a fair chosen few. What do you think, for example, Mikhail, of... The UCI's World Cycling Centre, which has been, you know, on British shores, responsible for pushing through Chris Froome and Victoria Pendleton. And most recently, uh, we've seen the fruit of, they would call it the fruit of their labours, um, Binyam Gamay, um, taking Gent Wevelgem, being the first black African to win a World Tour race. And then a couple of, you know, a month or so later, taking stage, uh, stage 10, I think, of the Giro. How do you see them being as though they are linked to the organisation that ultimately governs the progress of cycling, which we have just noted hasn't been particularly diverse for quite a long time and still isn't. Again, I don't want to throw stones at anyone who's pushing in this direction. Like I think, it, like I said, it, it's going to take a coalition. But at the same time, I am in general suspicious of the amount of resources that go into individuals. And I always fear that when that's happening... It's some sort of fig leaf initiative to cover exposure, right? Like, let's just spend a bunch of money, millions and millions of euros on three or four athletes so that we can say that this sport is international (laughs) rather than expanding the pool of potential athletes in the places where they actually ride bikes, you know? So not in Switzerland, but in Eritrea, uh, spending those, uh, spending that money in Rwanda, spending it in Kenya, expanding that talent pool. And then, you know, of course, polishing the best that come from that talent pool in places like Switzerland. That makes sense to me. And they, they will point, of course, to their regional hubs and various other things. But I'm just not satisfied with the numbers and neither should they, frankly. Uh, and again, Benjamin Gamay, as, as, as amazing as his achievements have been, we cannot be satisfied that one in a billion have made it through. 
to take a little bit of a left turn, Mikael, I'm, I, I love travel. I think there's a few things that just have broadened my mind so much since I was a kid. Reading is one, travel is another. So I'm super excited to get out and check out your gravel race, uh, migration gravel race. You've spent a lot of time in East Africa through your career as a lawyer and now involved in the Amani Project. I'm wondering what sort of stuff, because you mentioned earlier, like we go in to these countries thinking because we have higher socioeconomic means that we have all the answers. But if you look at our society at the moment, by a lot of metrics, it's a vastly sick, unhealthy society, you know, more social media followers than ever, but yet more isolated, more depression than ever, the breakdown of family, the breakdown of community. What lessons have you learned from spending time in East Africa that you've brought back to your life in the West? You know, uh, there's some really great stories coming from some of, of our athletes about how they didn't know they were poor until they saw white people. I really take that to heart, you know? like, And it's not just about racial dynamics. Uh, it's about how we live, you know? Like, if you're around a bunch of other people who are living with less, but <laughs> living their lives, and, you know, instead of playing with an Xbox, you're playing with a tire in the road, but you're still playing, you know? And you can't tell that kid otherwise that they're missing out on anything, you know? Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you guys can still remember back before there were smartphones and, like, how we would have played maybe uh, in our backyards uh, or in our streets. But there was a lot of interaction and a lot of enjoyment. And, and I didn't personally come from a life of means and I didn't have all the fancy things. And I don't remember being sad about it. So I guess one thing that I... I'm really taking home from from a lot of the experience that I've had is that it's easy to look at the world from uh, from the particular lens that we come from, you know, and 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 it's very difficult to kind of abstract yourself from it and see from a different perspective. But the best way to do it is is travel, right? But not this now kind of choreographed travel where like you've got your itinerary and you've got your handlers and you've got all these other things. So basically you're just replicating <laughs> the life that you had before just in a new place, you know, like same internet connections, same air conditioning, you know. It's uh, So, but if you do manage to abstract yourself from uh, your cultural milieu and, and you get a chance to, again, just, just shut up, just shut up you know and and instead of telling everyone how important you are and, and and you know how amazing the place you come from is just try to experience another place as subjectively as you can you'd be surprised what you can learn uh and i think that's what's really cool about um you know our races is that we invite athletes to come and invariably the ones who do come are already ones with more of an open mind than others uh, because they get on the plane um we promise nothing will happen to you and, you know, like you you won't be eaten by lions, even though we joke about it. Um, <laughs> and what you might find is that the, your, your preconceived notions about certain areas of the world are totally misplaced or outdated uh, or colored by, you know, uh, the selective information that you receive in your information loop. And it's not, and I'm not pointing fingers because I was exactly the same way, you know? I had my own preconceived notions about the global south before I traveled and worked there. Uh, and they were equally uninformed. But, you know, after a while, you realize, actually, that there's just a lot that we can learn from each other if we just go uh, with an open mind and experience it. So how, how do you kind of manage to, as you say, abstract yourself? Because it's that whole that kind of philosophical idea of there's no, there's no view from nowhere. We've always got a perspective 
But it's almost, from what I'm hearing, you know, you've got to kind of lose that perspective in order to see the truth in somebody else's situation. And there is, you know, historically a propensity for it being, you know, the well-heeled West coming along to try and save the poorer East across, you know, across the modern globe. How do you kind of get away from that feeling of that's what could be happening here? That's maybe what I might be doing, even though I think I'm doing it for the right reasons, and move into a place where you are ingratiating yourself fully or as much as possible with the people you're working with and really kind of doing it for them. Because I imagine there's, for me anyway, kind of putting myself in a situation where I feel like you, you might be in. That's, that's a big leap, isn't it? Because it's not, you're, you're spanning continents, cultures, but also your own kind of beliefs and desires for people that may not share those quite those same beliefs and desires. One thing I always tell my daughter, um, though I don't know if it sticks, is that a sign of true intelligence is appreciating that you know very little. Um, It's an old truism, but it really does hold true. And I do think that the more that you go out and experience uh, the world and the more different perspectives you take on, the more you realize that you know very little. And so it's not like you're... You're putting on airs to show how international you are, how cosmopolitan you are. And look at me, I, you know, I have some clothes from this place that I've traveled to and I'm projecting all of these values. That's, I mean, that's all, of course, superficial bullshit. What actually fundamentally happens to you, especially if you spend, as I have uh, fortunately or unfortunately spent most of my life away from the country I was born in, you just kind of, these things become like, it's part of your worldview, right? You understand actually that like, these cultures that you travel to have wealths of knowledge that you haven't been privy to. And so you better come to them with humility and respect. Otherwise, you miss an opportunity to make yourself better. You know, And if you come at every relationship and every engagement and every experience in that way, then like by definition, you're always going to be ahead of the curve. <laughs> You know, like you're not going to feel the impulse to go and tell people how it is as soon as you get off the plane, which is such a ridiculous thing to do. You know, uh, and you can only like, you know, I've also benefited from seeing such, you know, flying to all these places and being on planes filled with nothing but like Mormons and, you know, oil magnates. Uh, like, <laughs> like, I just, I, I, I just see that, uh, yeah, there's quite a lot of talking before listening in general. Um, and so, yeah, it, to the extent that you can take that on, I think you'd be better for it. Salam to, I'm not sure if you can hear me if you can't Michael can uh, jump back in with this one but I remember racing in the US and uh, such a big part of racing in the US was the long long drives like you might drive 25 26 hours to a race over two days and then you get out of the car and you just have absolutely no legs like your form would be back two days ago you had form and you get there travel has totally ruined you how important is the migration gravel race in bringing Europeans to experience your culture and have them carry the travel fatigue and to feel the obstacles that you feel all the time of different food, different language, different faces. Yeah, at first, apologies for my internet. Uh, I think I have it back now. It was raining some other parts, so it was affecting it. So <laughs> now it's okay. And I would say, like, the advantages of having the migration gravel here and the evolution is a big thing for, like, for us. I mean, Normally, like, it's very hard, like, when you're traveling, especially when you're traveling to a race, when you mention, like, in America, like, especially when you, like, travel in a short time, like, you need a lot of time to recover from the jet lag. 
but from this, you just just a few hours driving, and then like you have like everything you need, like you have a, your own food and everything that everything that you're familiar with. Then it's easy for your mental like to work. It's just like you have an, a, a big advantage, and the big advantage is like when you have these guys here racing with you with us right here. Unfortunately, I haven't raced with them. I'm maybe explaining. I will do it next year. Like it will be a big privilege for me, like to race at home with the pros, and you get the experience at home. And like this is the opportunity that we're always missing, like racing here in Africa. Then we have it here in home. Then it's going to be easy. Like even to get like a new riders into cycling, it's very easy because like we're bringing everyone in without like investing a lot. This is a big advantage and opportunity for us. That's that's another point that Salim raises that uh, we haven't really touched upon. But I mean, the financial resources for sending athletes to these pressure-packed auditions, you know, uh, necessarily means that the experience and the opportunities will be limited. Um, but when you bring a few athletes, you know, top-flight athletes to to Kenya to race, we can have forty or fifty of the best athletes from the region, you know, accessing that same pace, that same experience uh, at, you know, a fraction of the cost. So in terms of sustainability, you know, it's just one of these things where the more we can, again, not only normalize the participation of our athletes in international races, but also normalize the, the, the inverse where international athletes come and compete in, in East Africa, the more opportunities there will be for that up and coming generation to experience cycling, not only from from a racing perspective, but also from, you know, from a fan perspective, right? To make this sport like a real sport in Kenya, because at the moment it's very niche. But Mikkel, does that UCI rule still apply? I know it did back in the day, or if it's like a, a 2.2 or above race, that, that race organizer will cover at least a portion of your expenses for traveling over. Well, that's why we're not a UCI race. <laughs> <laughs> But for you guys traveling to, you know, Ireland, UK, wherever for a UCI event. Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, we're not, because the the UCI events come with another uh, restriction, which is that they have to be signed off on by national federations. Ah, okay. And um, I don't want to say anything about that, except for that's also been a challenge at times. Uh, so, again, another reason why... Uh, gravel is so important for us. Uh, anywhere that we where we don't necessarily have to go to local authorities to seek approval or explain or anything um, is just that much easier. Interesting. I was wondering. You, you know, we're talking about competing at home versus competing overseas, competing in Europe, and the effect that that can have and that kind of fatigue. But also, just thinking about you racing um, migration race versus you doing for listeners that don't know, you rode uh, the first UCI gravel world champs, which was um, in Italy this year in early October. How was that? What were your experiences there? Like physically, I was uh, good, but mentally, like uh, I was very prepared for it. It came this night before the race, which I got very sick. Then I was very sick and I didn't get a good experience about it, but I would imagine if I was healthy, how it was going to be uh, and how I was going to perform there. But unfortunately, I didn't like enjoy it because I was sick. Yeah. 
the photos tell the story. The rest of the team is all smiles, and Salim has a very sad frown on his face because <laughs> he had to he had to race with COVID, I think. Uh, but he didn't know he had it. But uh, it, it, he was very sick on the start line for sure. And what what did you make of the course, Salim? Because in terms of kind of international press, a lot of people sort of said this isn't really gravel. There was a lot of paved roads and also just uh, tracks. They're not proper gravel sort of stuff. What did you make of the course? Yeah, I would say like the course was like, it looked like a strike Bianchi, the, the classic strike Bianchi was just exactly like it. It was more more or less nothing like a gravel racing. If you see like most of the guys were using their road bikes, like the technical part, which like the gravel bike was valuable was just in the beginning, which you are a little descent. The rest of the like 150k was just flat on a smooth gravel, which suits some road bikes, which was nothing like a gravel racing. Mikel, Salim, uh, for selfish reasons, thank you guys so much for pushing the agenda forward. I'm just so excited to see how fast we can actually go on a bike. Can somebody break 60 kilometers for the world hour record 10 years from now? Who knows? But thanks very much for joining us on Cyclist Magazine Podcast. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for having us, guys. We really appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.